Good morning. And it is a good morning. This morning we find ourselves in the book of Acts. We've been talking about perseverance. We've been talking about the events that took place during Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. So you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, where we left off, in chapter 14 and in verse 8. And we got a fair amount to cover today, so we're just going to open up in prayer and see what God wants to speak to our hearts today. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time we have a fellowship and praise and worship, pouring into each other's lives and reconnecting and encouraging one another. Lord, we thank you for the weekend and the men's conference, and we thank you for all of the events that take place here at our fellowship and how so many people participate and how many people are blessed and the work you're doing in and through our lives and to those around us. And we thank you for every single person here today. Continue to keep us healthy. Continue to do your work in our midst. Continue to do mighty things in and through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, Lorianne suggested that I start reminding you to turn off your cell phones. <laughs> and I forgot. But I just was reminded, though. <laughs> so this morning we find ourselves in chapter 14. And Paul and Barnabas have been to the areas in Asia Minor that included Pisidian Antioch, Iconium. And now they find themselves in Lystra. And we read in the first paragraph there of this section, it says, In Lystra there was a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. I have to admit, I would love to see miraculous works of power happen as frequently as they're recorded in the book of Acts. Remember that the book of Acts was recorded over a period of about 30 years. So when you take all of the miracles recorded and sort of span it out over the 30 years, it's not like there was a miracle every day, but there certainly were many more miracles then than we see today. And if you go to the roughly three, three and a half years of Jesus's ministry, it's fair to say that there were miracles just about every day, and many of them. So if you're like me, you're asking the question, what is it that happens or doesn't happen in our world today and within the church that we don't see miracles taking place? Now, I can give you all the theological explanations, but I'm going to give you a very simple one. I think there are two extremes. There are those of us And I am a charismatic, so I would love to see this happen all the time. But there are those of us who who think that miracles will happen if we sort of manufacture them. And we're, we're willing to look at the littlest thing and call it a miracle. And I understand the passion. I understand the desire. I really do. But what happens when you oversell something, you you start to ruin the credibility of what it is. You know... I've been walking with the Lord about 35 years, and I can honestly say that I haven't seen this kind of a miracle ever. I've seen things that might have been miraculous, but I've never seen this. Not like this. 
Oh, I've heard stories, and you have as well. We've watched the YouTube videos. We've seen the, the accounts that people have of miracles taking place. But why is it that my attitude toward those things always seems to be skepticism? It's not because I don't believe in healing. I believe in every one of the gifts of the Spirit, including tongues, including healing. I I am, by definition, charismatic. And I think sometimes we forget at Calvary Chapel that Pastor Chuck was a Pentecostal. And many of the people that inherited the ministry from him and those people that followed in his footsteps, including myself, we have become a little bit more conservative about these things than Pastor Chuck was, and sometimes we either rail against them or deny that miracles take place. And I don't understand that, but there's just something within our human nature that doesn't allow us to accept miracles. And yet there are some that are so wanting it that they see a miracle every five minutes. Somewhere in between these two extremes, there is the truth. Does God perform miracles today? Amen. Look around. You're looking at some miracles here. I mean, I know that's not the kind of miracle we're talking about because spiritual miracles happen all the time. No one would dispute that. On any side of the spectrum, no one disputes spiritual miracles. I think where we have a hard time is when things like this happen that we simply cannot explain that are so obvious that nobody can dispute it. And a healing like this is in that category. I hope by the end of our time together, you're going to see that basically God does what he wants to do. But there are aspects of our faith today that can prevent God from working in this way, or, and I don't want to say facilitate, that's the word that comes to mind, allow for or encourage God to work miraculously in and through our lives. So let's get right into it. Paul and Barnabas, they're proclaiming the word of God in Lystra. They've been chased out of two other cities in this area. Now they find themselves there. Now Lystra was a principal city in a Roman colony south of Iconium in eastern Lycaonia. I mentioned this last time. The word means the land of the wolves. So Lycaonia was a region in Asia Minor. It was situated between the areas of Pisidia, Cilicia, Phrygia, Galatia, areas you're familiar with. It's this little region within a province that you're familiar with. And Paul... Filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to stress that. Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it's not Paul that does the healing. It's the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. But filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul heals a man crippled in his feet and lame from birth. Now, have you ever watched a baby learn to walk? That is a toddler. They don't get it right on the first time. There's a lot of head bumping. And that's why they're little. Because when they fall, they don't have far to they got a lot of padding. They bump their heads a few times, but you know, you learn as a baby, you learn. And most of you, some of you maybe with health problems couldn't, but most of you, if not all of you, walked in here today. So you haven't forgotten how to walk, even if you have some issues with walking. You haven't forgotten. You learn how to walk when you're a child. This is the problem, though, with this explanation for this guy. He had never learned to walk. So even if his legs were perfectly healed, How did he learn to walk instantaneously such that he not only walked, he jumped up? See, I'm scratching my head at that one. And when you start to scratch your head and say, I don't get it, that's what we call a miracle. See, a miracle by definition is inexplicable. That is, you can't explain it. 
And there are lots of things that happen that we can't explain. Like, how is it that you were praying for God to meet your needs and you needed $3,000 to pay the rent and then you go home and there's a $3,000 check in your mailbox and you don't even know where it came from or it was something you forgot about or it was a tax return or something else. How is that possible? Well, that is God's miraculous provision, amen? But we're not talking about that kind of miracle because... That's not at the same level. Can I say that? Are there levels of miracles? Like Jesus being raised from the dead, a miracle of miracles, right? But someone being healed or anyone being raised from the dead is on a different level, you would agree. So here's the issue, and and I'm going to approach it skeptically a little bit, but you can't really be skeptical because it's recorded in God's word, and we know it's true. This man who had never been able to walk listened to Paul as he was speaking. First point, and if you're taking notes, you might want to hold on to this. Is he'd like to see more miracles in our church and in the world today, which I I think we desperately need. If we're going to be able to combat the lies and the deception of the enemy in today's culture, we better see some miracles. See, that's what was happening in these cultures. One of the issues with the miracles was it was necessary to reach the culture. I think we forget miracles aren't really there to encourage the church. They do. But they're really there to reach the world. So the first thing is, they were living at a time of great opposition. Check. We're living at a time of great opposition. They were living at a time where the word was being preached to people who didn't know it. We're preaching the word. Check. They were living at a time where where God wanted to work powerfully and was willing to work powerfully and needed to work powerfully because the world was dead set against what they were speaking. And they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the way I look at it, and maybe I'm wishful thinking, I don't think so, all of the qualifications for why the church saw miracles in the first century exist and we meet those qualifications today. In fact, I keep thinking to myself, what could possibly change our culture? Not miracles. The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So if people hear the Word of God, now here's the problem. They may not believe it. So what God in His infinite mercy and glory does is He comes alongside the preaching of God's Word and presents a miracle that cannot be disputed. But brothers and sisters, miracles don't change lives. God changes lives. Let's continue. Paul and Barnabas, they usually taught the word of God in the Jewish synagogue, and they were usually thrown out. But it's quite possible that there wasn't a synagogue in Lystra, and if there was, they may have intentionally shared the gospel with the Gentiles first. This may have been intentional. And this is likely, given the recent persecution by the Jews in Antioch and Iconium, I don't find it hard to believe that maybe Paul and Barnabas looked at each other and said, maybe this time we start with the Gentiles. But they haven't really gotten that far, and already God is working powerfully, miraculously. Paul was able to see something, and this is another key component, I believe, even though we're living in a time where miracles are necessary in the preaching of the gospel to reach the culture, there was something else that was present that Paul was able to discern. He was able to see that this man had the faith to be healed. Why do we need faith to be healed? I don't know, but Jesus made it clear. Faith, on our part, is a component of God doing a miraculous work. 
I'm not going to say that your faith or lack of faith can prevent God from working. I'm going to say that your faith or lack of faith is a component in experiencing miraculous things. That's all I'm going to say. Because God can do a miracle whether you want him to or not. And he can do a miracle whether you believe it or not. In fact, many times the miracles brought about faith. But in this man's life, there was a reason he experienced a miracle. And we're told what that reason was. Paul looked directly at him and saw he had the faith to be healed. Do you have the faith to be healed? Now, what does that mean? Oh, I really believe it. I really believe it. You know, ever do that? You can, it's like, if I really believe it, I just kind of say it over and over again. If I really believe it, I, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think. Remember that little book, The Little Engine They Could, parents? You probably read it to your kids. I remember that as a, The Little Engine They Could. That's not what having the faith to believe in miracles means. It's letting go and saying, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. Lord, I know you can do anything. At times I struggle with that truth, and I may not always really believe it, but here's what I'm going to do. Your will be done. There's something about the preaching of the word that brings you to a place of faith. This man got to a place of faith, and you know, somewhere in his heart, it was showed up in his eyes, he said, I believe that this God that Paul is talking about could heal me. Was he wishful thinking? Maybe. But he did believe And he believed because the word of God was preached and faith brings about that kind of healing. But the word of God brings about that kind of faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So you you can't expect God to work in this way if you're not doing ministry the way he's called you. You preach the word of God. People are going to meet God. They're going to cry out to God. And God in his infinite mercy and grace is going to say, that one over there can't walk. And for my purposes, and according to my will, I'm going to touch that person to bless them, but not just them. Everyone around them, and not just them, but everyone around them. And that's how God works, and he doesn't ask for my permission as to whether he can or not. But, if I were to adopt a theology that didn't allow for me to believe that God could work in that way, would you expect, although God could, would you expect that that would be a place where God could work in that way? Probably not. Remember that Jesus said, or the Gospels told us that he didn't do many miracles in a certain place because they didn't believe? Here's all I'm going to challenge all of us, myself included, to think about as we go into the new year and the rest of this year. Just say within your heart, I believe God can do anything. Why don't we say that together? I believe God can do anything. And stop. You know what the temptation is next? Accept this and that. And wait a minute. He didn't do this. Just stop right there. I believe God can do anything. And let God be God. Now, this man must have come to a place of faith because he heard something in the word of God. He jumps up. And by the way, what was it? I mean, this man had the faith in the power of Jesus Christ. But after hearing the word of God, and Paul, he exercises a spiritual gift called the gift of knowledge. He knew something about this man or discernment. He discerned and knew something about this man. He had the faith to be healed. He, that, that's a spiritual gift that was given to Paul. And then Paul commanded the man to stand up on his feet. Do you know why he could do that? You would never do that. I would never do that. You know why he had to do that? Because God made it so abundantly clear to him that he was supposed to do that, that if he didn't, he would have been disobeying God. Brothers and sisters, you can't just want something to happen and expect it to happen. There are a couple of other components. One of the other things we see, the man had faith, but wait a minute. Paul also was given a gift. He was given the gift of faith and God's will and responded to God's will and obedience. And of course God worked because God wasn't going to tell him, go ahead and heal that man and then pull a fast one on him. 
This isn't like practical jokers. This isn't, this isn't one of those things where he's going to make Paul look bad. He says, this is what you're going to do. Now, every single one of us faced with that opportunity would, would respond as Paul did because you'd hear from God, and you know God has the power to heal, and the man has the desire to be healed and the faith that he can be healed, and, and Paul just responds in obedience to God's word, and God does his work. It wasn't Paul's great faith. It wasn't the man's great faith. It was faith and faith in God. And I'm sharing these things so you can apply them to your heart and so that we can see God work miraculously. Because here's what I really know. I do know that should the world be changed in their thinking about the gospel, it probably won't be some of the things we've been using to change the world, like blending in with the culture and giving in to the culture. It's probably going to be faithfulness to God's word, faith in their hearts, and us having the faith to believe God can work powerfully and miraculously. And I would love to see that because you know what that would do in terms of reaching people with the gospel? But I can tell you right now, if God were to work exactly like this in our fellowship or in one of our small groups or or, or at some point in one of our services, the very first thing I would be led to do, I can tell you absolutely, is please, dear, dear God, help these people not to post it immediately on Facebook. Because I don't believe that would be a healthy thing. But I do believe that the word of a miracle in someone's life spreads as the Holy Spirit brings it to the hearts of those that need to hear it. And then they find their, where was that? What was that church? Where where did you get healed? They see their neighbor walking up the stairs. Guys haven't walked in 20 years or ever. What, What happened? Brother, you need to come out to Calvary Chapel. Not because of Calvary Chapel, but because the word of God's being preached. And if you have faith, God will do miraculous things. Do I sound like a heretic to suggest such a thing? I just believe God can do anything. Do you believe God can do anything? Say amen. Okay, so, I love this. The man stands up on his feet. He jumps. I like that, jumps. You'd jump too if you never walked. He jumped up and he walked, and Paul exercised this gift of faith, but the man received the spiritual gift of healing. The gift of healing is to the person that needs to be healed, not to the person who does the healing. The faith is given to the person who does the healing or is used to bring about healing. The healing is given to the man who is lame or the man who can't walk or the woman who has an issue of blood, or anyone who may be healed by God. Okay, so the Lycaonians in Lystra react in a very interesting way, because you would think, based on all that I've shared already, that this would have brought about a great revival. And here's the tricky thing about miracles. They don't always do that. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. In fact, this miracle, while a blessing to this man, actually became a challenge to the ministry. And I really believe that sometimes God doesn't do miracles because the result of that miracle, it could bring in a flood of curious people who really don't love God, who are just curious about miracles. And all of a sudden, you, you've got, you know, two or three hundred people who love God, and now you have three or four thousand people who don't know God. And the spiritual temperature of the church can go down. That's not always a good thing. It can be, but it's not necessarily. Are you with me? So here's the problem. Look what happens in verses 11 through 13 when the crowd... By the way, you never preach to the crowd. You preach the word of God to the heart, not to the crowd or to the crowds. See, that's where we get it wrong. We think the gospel is more powerful when it's preached to the crowds. No, it's more powerful when it's preached to the heart. That can be one heart, two hearts, three hearts, 800 hearts, it doesn't matter. Not to the crowds. But when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, 
they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And you might be thinking, wow, what a temptation. They're, they're gods now, right? This is gonna, you, you would not be interpreting that correctly. Because you see, the Holy Spirit, working through Paul, caused them to, to believe that they were gods, but they thought Barnabas was Zeus, who was the chief of the Olympians, the Greek gods, and they must have seen Barnabas's stately appearance, or maybe he was directing Paul because Barnabas was a little bit more uh, solid or mature in the faith. They thought Paul was Hermes because he had the gift of gab, I guess. You know, he knew how to talk, and he, he was the one speaking, and that's what Hermes did. He was the messenger and the son of Zeus in the Greek pantheon. So they came to this conclusion because Paul was speaking to them, but they're not really listening to the message. They see the miracle, and immediately they think something that isn't true. And this is why sometimes I wonder whether we're better off without miracles. You see, I'm going back and forth with you because it's a challenging subject. Because you'd want a miracle, but you don't want this. You don't want this. So let me explain what was happening. The priest of Zeus led the people in an attempt to worship them as gods. Now, they were worshipers of Zeus, and many of them were living in Lystra who worshiped Zeus. They had a temple right outside the city. But according to the Greek myths, and you may be familiar with Greek mythology. I happen to love it. I have my whole life, really enjoy studying it. But according to Greek mythology, Zeus and Hermes had come down to Lystra in disguise. No one showed them hospitality except two old peasants. And they blessed the couple, that is the gods in human flesh. It's just a story, but it's a, it's, it's a story to teach a lesson. No one blessed them, no one took them in, but this one couple, these two old peasants, they blessed the couple that had showed them kindness And so what did the gods do to reward them? They turned them into two trees guarding the temple of Zeus. It's a story. But they believed it. And by the way, you know what they did to the rest of the population? They wiped them out. You see, what's happening here is the people are responding in terror and in fear. They're afraid because of what they were told, which wasn't true, about miracles in the past, that if if the gods came down in human form or human flesh, that they were here to destroy anyone that defied them. Their understanding of God or gods was so warped that they feared them and they believed that they had to do something to prevent them from destroying them. Do you know how many people think about God that way today? It's good to fear the Lord in respect and reverence. But if you're afraid that God wants to destroy you, you have a very wrong concept of who God is. Because he did come in human flesh, amen? And he died on a cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. And he's coming again, yes he is, to judge the living and the dead. But you don't need to be afraid of him. You need to fear him and respect him, but not be afraid of him. He's not looking to destroy you. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So they missed the memo. 
they didn't listen, or enough of them didn't listen to what Paul was saying. One man did, and he was healed, but the rest of them just saw something, and they, they came to the wrong conclusion. They're terrified that if they don't show hospitality and kindness to Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas are going to destroy them. And if they're really lucky, maybe they'll get turned into trees. So you see the fear? This wasn't awe and respect and admiration. This was terror. The priest of Zeus comes out and these pagans, that's what they were, pagans wanted to sacrifice bulls to Paul and Barnabas. They were terrified that if they didn't show hospitality, they'd be killed. They had a wrong concept of who God is. And they weren't about to make the same mistake as what they had been taught in the myth. So as you understand that, you you recognize how horrified Paul and Barnabas may have been. You know, it, it wasn't like there was a temptation. All these people really love us. They understood. They really feared them. So here's what they did. They tried. They tried to convince the people, we're not them and we're not here to destroy you. We're here to present the gospel. But here's what happened when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this. They tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, humans like you. We are bringing you the good news, that is the gospel. Telling you, now here's the gospel, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. And in the past, he let all nations go their own way, that is in ignorance, Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from the heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even these words, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. They're so scared and terrified that the gods want to destroy them that they can't hear the message of love. So there are really two reactions in all of the world religions. There are two reactions to the truth of God, the creator of the universe, and the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ. We know him as Jesus Christ. But whether some people refer to him as Allah or Jehovah or some other name, or maybe they believe in multiple gods, at the source of false belief is is really fear. It's fear. And then you have people who would rather not be afraid, so they dismiss God and say he doesn't exist. But they're afraid too. They're afraid that he does exist. So they do everything they can to try to disprove that he exists. Because why? Because they don't want him to exist because they know if he did, he might judge them. So do you see how every single human being on the earth that doesn't know Jesus Christ is afraid? I've already told you what the enemy will do with fear, but we also learned and know that God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love, power, and a sound mind. We know God's love. We know his power. We see evidence in this scripture today. And therefore, we can have a sound mind. And what that word for sound mind means, you're not panicky. You're not anxious. You're not freaking out because you know God loves you. Do you know God loves you? Say amen. So if you know God loves you, you're not afraid. You fear God, but you're not afraid of God. And and so I want you to just take a moment and think this through with me. The whole world says they hate God, but really they fear God. They fear that he exists 
because if he does, they're afraid of what might happen to them in eternity. Or they're afraid of God, and so they do everything they can to prevent him from destroying them. Like Hindus. Hinduism is based on this understanding that there are millions and hundreds of millions of gods, and if you tick one off, you're going to die, or you will die, and you'll come back as like a cockroach. Islam speaks of Allah, which basically is just the Arabic name for God. But they're terrified of him. And of course, there are those within Islam that teach more noble teachings and those that don't, certainly those that teach terror. But all of them are afraid of God. Are you afraid of God? Please don't be. He loves you. Fear God. But don't be afraid of him. So Paul and Barnabas are, you know, they're, what do we do now? I, I can imagine if suddenly there was a healing here and the newspaper showed up and CNN walked in the back door, what would I do? First thing I'd do is probably an exorcism. <laughs> but what would I do? It could ruin things here, couldn't it? It really could. It could really make things unbearable. So we got to be careful when we ask for a miracle. We really do need to say, thy will be done. And yet I want to see God work miraculously. I do. I really do. And I have the faith to believe he can. I really do. But I also know that sometimes he doesn't, and sometimes he does, and it doesn't work out the way you thought it would, and there, here we are. So their ministry had created significant commotion within the city. That's putting it mildly. By the way, do you see how they referred to as apostles here? Some people think only the original 12 are apostles. There were many, many, many apostles because the word means one who's sent. You'd use it to describe an envoy or an ambassador. Apostles were sent out. I mentioned this, I believe, last week. Apostles were sent out by God to preach the gospel, and they were using signs and wonders to reach people who didn't know the truth. And being authorized as an apostle required a specific call from God, but the church didn't have to call you. God had to call you. Now, I don't claim to be an apostle, but if someone was an apostle, a missionary would be the closest thing to an apostle of the first century. Someone who goes and plants churches, a church planter. And in the sense that several of us came here to New Jersey, we were in New York. I lived in New Jersey, but we ministered in New York and planted this church back in 2003. In that sense, we were sent out. In that sense, we were being apostles. But it's a little different. I think this is definitely something more akin to the first century church. But regardless, notice Barnabas and Paul are both called apostles. And there were others. Apostles were called to establish churches, to ordain elders to lead them, and then move on and plant another church. And I don't, I don't feel called in that way. But there were some that simply planted churches and moved on, and Paul was one of them. Barnabas was another. By the way, they did everything they could to keep the crowd from offering sacrifices to them. They ripped their clothes. That's a sign of humility in the ancient world. They wanted to show them, look, we're just human beings, just like you. They reminded them that they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them to turn from worthless idols and false gods, and here they are turning to those very things. They had called them to worship the true God who created all things, but they missed that part of it. They were too overcome with fear. Paul and Barnabas had taught them that God was calling the Gentiles to faith in him, and they needed to respond. See, they were once outside the family of God, but they had always had God's testimony. And Paul and Barnabas had taught them that God had mercifully provided for them. Now, why would he mention the rain and the crops? Very simply, Lystra was an agricultural center. And 
was known for its abundance of crops. They were very blessed agriculturally. They were the breadbasket of that area. So they were willing, that is these Lycaonians, were willing to exercise faith in these false gods, and they believed that the false gods gave them prosperity. But Paul credited the true and the living God with their earthly blessings. They were attributing those same blessings to their false gods. What Paul's trying to say is, you know what? It's God who's been blessing you all along. Why do you fear him? Why are you afraid of him? But they had difficulty and a difficult time convincing the crowd not to sacrifice to them. Okay. Well, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit sometimes works because Paul and Barnabas were led by the Holy Spirit to leave Lystra and go to a place called Derby. Now, Lystra sort of represents where you might have some severe and, and difficult challenges. Derby experiences what, or is an experience of what happens after you get through those challenges. Because things are decidedly better in Derby. But Lystra is a challenge. And you've got to work through those challenges to get to the blessings. So here's what we find. Verses 19 and 20. Then some Jews. Oh, so it isn't bad enough. Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium... Came from, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, won the crowd over. They came from these places and they won the crowd over. What did they do? They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for, for Derby. Well, of course they did. Uh, did you really need a memo to tell you it was time to leave? No. They, they had done what they came to do. And, and, and what they could do, they did. And they'll be back. But for now, they need to get out of Dodge because you know what? It, it's, really, it's just going south really, really quickly. So what happened here? Well, these Jews, they came from the cities where there was trouble, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. Remember, they had stirred up persecution against them in Antioch. They had them expelled. They had poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against them in Iconium. In fact, they had incited their leaders in Iconium to persecute them and put them to death. These guys are following them around. They may have traveled as much as 100 miles to try to destroy Paul and Barnabas' ministry. The devil will go to great depths to destroy you. It's also possible that they traveled there for trade and were just angry to see Paul still preaching. But regardless, the enemy is after them and doing a work against them. Well, these Jews succeeded in convincing the crowd in Lystra to stone Paul to death. They took advantage of the present confusion among the Gentiles, and they said, this is our opportunity. Let's start trouble and have Paul killed. How do you go from being a god that they feared to being a man that they put to death? Well, that's what happens when a mob takes over. They're not thinking. We saw plenty of that over the last two years. Mob just takes over. The very people that you know, you thought they liked suddenly are being persecuted and dragged through the streets. That, that's how it happens. You know, the, the police officers and first responders and firemen and everything who are our heroes were being pelted with rocks and shot at and for no good reason. But that's how it goes. We saw that very clearly last summer. We saw a lot of it, unfortunately. So Paul... He's dragged outside the city because they thought he was dead. Now, we're told they thought he was dead. We don't know whether he was dead. I don't think Paul knew whether he was dead. But he definitely at least got knocked out. But here's the other thing. When something like that happens, if they think you're dead and they stop throwing rocks at you, you might want to play dead. So I'm not sure what happened. I don't even think Paul knows exactly what happened. 
He may have stopped breathing. He may have been knocked out. We don't know. But here's the truth. The disciples in Lystra gathered around him and Paul got up and returned to the city. Was it a miraculous healing? Possibly, possibly not. It doesn't really matter. But I'm sure they prayed for him to be healed. They may have even prayed for him to be raised from the dead, and perhaps he was. It's certainly possible that he died and was raised from the dead. In fact, I want to read you a scripture from 2 Corinthians, and in chapter 12, and just verses 2 through 4, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's talking about something that took place, and it lines up with what took place here in Lystra. He says, I know a man in Christ, and he's speaking of himself in the third person, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell or to talk about. So that's Paul's account of what happened. So don't tell me you know, because he didn't know. Something happened. Something happened. Something significant happened. I'll leave it at that. He wrote purposely, yet indirectly, about this experience, and this is most likely a reference to what we just read and what took place in Lystra. Now, here he refers to the third heaven. I want to explain. It's a reference to the afterlife, because when people in the ancient times looked up at the sky, the first heaven would be this, the, the blue sky, you know, the atmosphere. The second heaven would be the outer space, you know, the, the stars and the planets, comets and those things. The third heaven was, in their minds, beyond that. That's eternity. That's what he's talking about, the afterlife. And he doesn't know for sure whether he was dead or alive. Just could have been a vision. But whatever happened, he uses the word paradise. And uh, actually, Richie, you were asking me a question just before service about what happened when Jesus died and did he go to hell? And a lot of people are confused about this. Of course, he descended into the heart of the earth. But at that time, in Luke's gospel, Jesus talks about this. There was two compartments. There was a place called paradise or Abraham's bosom. Paradiso in the Greek. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in Paradiso, paradise. He didn't say heaven. He said paradise, which is the place of the righteous dead. It would be three days before they all entered heaven. And that makes sense? Amen? So then you also have this place, Hades, the place of torture. The rich man is in there and he wants Lazarus to just dip his finger because he's, it's incredibly hot and he's being tortured. Jesus didn't go to a place of torment. Jesus went to paradise. He said, today you will be with who? Me, in paradise. So don't tell me, some people teach, they don't read their Bibles, that's the problem. Very simple. You don't have to be a genius, you've got to be able to read. So he uses the word paradise as the pleasant afterlife. Hades is the Greek word for the afterlife that you probably think of as hell. And yet that's not hell because that happens at the end of time. Whole another Bible study. So we're going to move on. But he claims to have heard things beyond his expression and our comprehension, which doesn't surprise me. He was well enough to get up after being stoned and brave enough to go back into the city. So I think it probably was some type of spiritual experience. At least that's what Paul says. But he didn't let this awful experience discourage him from continuing to preach the gospel. And therein lies the key to perseverance. You are going to have absolutely horrific experiences in your life. Personal tragedies, challenges, persecutions. I don't know if there were only a scripture that said that. If those were only Jesus' words somewhere in the Bible. You know, the truth is we are going to be persecuted. And you better get used to it. But when it happens, you can't be like, oh, well. You know, I, I, I want to preach the gospel, but I might go to jail. Or, you know, I want to share the truth with my neighbor, but they might turn me into the, turn me into the thought police and I might be canceled. Canceled? Are you really that afraid? Are you like those pagans that, that come out with the 
priests from the temple of Zeus and start doing anything you can, bending over backwards, trying to make everybody happy so you're not canceled? Is that how you respond to the word of God? You're afraid? I asked you before, are you, are you afraid of God? I hope not. Do you believe God can do anything? Say amen. So if you believe God can do anything, what are you so afraid of? When someone wants to cancel you, that just tells you Jesus' words are true. He didn't use that word. He said despitefully use. He said persecute, intimidate. All those things happen. But that just proves that what Jesus said 2,000 years ago is coming true. You should be excited because it means God's word is true in your life. So what happened to these guys? You know, what would you have done? I mean, this is pretty serious. This is pretty serious. But this awful experience didn't stop them. In fact, Paul and Barnabas, they left Lystra. They traveled east to Derby the very next day. And I'm sure Paul was pretty beat up regardless of what happened. I mean, God could have instantaneously healed him. Maybe he did. I don't know. He didn't know. But I do know this. Derby was a small town in southeastern Lycaonia, about 20 miles from Lystra. Just very close. And the surrounding country included a province we're very familiar with, Galatia. And we know Paul loved the people of Galatia. And a lot of his ministry was focused on them. We'll see that in coming chapters in the book of Acts. So the Holy Spirit directed them to leave Lystra through this persecution, and the Holy Spirit used this to direct them to go to Derby and Galatia. Is it all bad news? Nope. Because even in persecution, God is working to bring you to where he's called you to be. Can I hear an amen? Okay. So I'm so glad that Derby went better for them. You know, even God knows when we need a break. You know, have you ever reached that point? You're at the end of yourself. You're just done. Your kids are driving you crazy. Your parents are driving you crazy. Your neighbors are driving you crazy. Your job is driving you crazy. And you just come home and you think, I, I, I need something. I, just, I need something. Throw me a bone. I need something. And then you get a call, and it's good news. Some blessing you never anticipated. Something happens that you never really thought would happen. And you know what? You stop and you think, God is good. In the midst of all of this, that God would do this for me, God is good. And that's called faith and trusting God and persevering. So here's what happens in verses 21 through 23. It's it's amazing. We don't really learn too much about Derby, but we know it went well because it says they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Notice, not believers, disciples. That means followers of Jesus. And then they returned to Lystra. (gasps) What? Did Did you miss that the first time you read that? Iconium. And Antioch. Huh. Wait a minute. I think I understand something. They went to Derby, God encouraged them, and they went back to the same places that stoned Paul, tried to kill Paul, expelled Paul and Barnabas. Are they crazy? Are they insane? Or do they trust God? Well, Derby's just a small town, as we said. But the great number of Gentiles believed God's word. They received eternal life. Not just converts, not just believers, disciples. They must have taken more than just a few hours of time with them for them to be disciples. This must have been a period of maybe weeks, maybe months. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But these blessings would have never been experienced if they had given up in Lystra. If you give up in Lystra, you'll never get to Derby. And if you never get to Derby, you'll never go back to Lystra. Iconium, and Antioch. You want to persevere? (laughs) You got to hang in there. 
in the face of the worst possible things that can happen. I don't think being pelted with rocks is going to be topped by anything we go through, to be honest. So Paul and Barnabas bravely returned to the very places they had been persecuted. Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Uh, They were the same cities where they had been persecuted. And their experience in Derby must have encouraged them to return. And that's what God will do. People say, are you crazy? No, I just trust God. Somebody say, I trust God. If you trust God, the world's going to think you're crazy. But you're not. You just have faith. So, it's possible some amount of time had passed. and So they risked their lives to strengthen these disciples and encourage them in the faith. Notice it goes on to say, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Notice this is the testimony. And this is going to be your testimony. This is going to be my testimony at some point in our lives. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. And Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. No, each church. Each church. Does that mean there were more than one? Yeah. In each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. I, I don't really need to elaborate on what just happened here, right? You, you get it. I, I think I set this up. You, you understand they were trusting God, right? And look what God did. Wow. That's impressive. That's actually a little bit more impressive than a man who couldn't walk from birth, getting up, jumping up, and walking. It is. And that's as miraculous as the healing. But sometimes we want that other thing, that thing that's flashy and showy, but God wants to do a miracle. He's going to work through that, but he's going to do a miracle. It's a little bit more subtle. It's going to be in your heart. It's going to be in your life. You're going to find courage and strength and encouragement to do what other people say is crazy. Why? Because you trust in God. And you trusting in God and me trusting in God, that's a miracle. Amen? And that's the miracle we need, the miracle of faith. The hardships that they had experienced actually qualified them to teach these people by word, but also by example. And by the way, example is the only way you teach anything. And they could. They could say those words. They could say those words. They're hard words. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Hard words to live. Hard words to speak. Hard words to hear. Hard words to apply. But this prepared them to go through many hardships before they would enter God's kingdom. And then what did they do? They, or, they ordained elders to lead them, they, they, uh, to lead each of these newly planted churches, and they moved on. They recognized the importance of spiritual leadership in the church. That's important. And they didn't make these decisions lightly. Did you notice? They didn't take a vote. But through much prayer and fasting, they made a decision. must have been good decisions because these, these churches continued to thrive for some time. They committed them, these disciples, to the Lord and the, to the people that they trusted, the elders. So they committed them to the Lord, and they trusted in the Lord, but they also trusted in their elders because their elders trusted in the Lord. See, as spiritual leaders, if we're not trusting in the Lord, the people will not trust the Lord. So when a, when a woke pastor gets up and kowtows to the government, the people do too. Because that pastor doesn't trust God. Oh, pastor, how can you say that? I don't know, I speak English. Did you hear me? I could say it in Spanish, but it would still be the same truth. 
See, as a pastor, I'm called to trust God. As a Christian, you're called to trust God. But as an elder, my responsibility is to live by word and example, go through many hardships, so that when you see me going through it, you go through it with me, and we go through it together. And that's why we're here today. Amen. So, they committed them to the Lord in whom these elders had put their trust. They knew that they could trust God with these people. These elders were qualified because they were called, but specifically because they trusted the Lord. Well, let's wrap this thing up. The first missionary journey comes to a close. But I love the fact that they went back to these places. And this is what we read. Now they decide to head home. It's been a, it's been a while. It's been years. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they reached the, uh, when then they preached the word in Perga. And they went down to Atalia. Now, I just want to stop talking about Perga for just a minute. They're traveling through these regions that they had traveled through before. They're on their way back through the very same regions they traveled through. But Paul and Barnabas now proclaim the word of God in Perga and Pamphylia. Now remember, they traveled south through Pisidia and arrived in this place called Perga. Pisidia was a mountainous region in Asia Minor. It's north of Pamphylia. It's not easy to get there, but they're on their way home. Perga was a town in Pamphylia. It's near the Cestius River. It's on the coast of Asia Minor or, minor, uh, or, or modern-day Turkey. Yes, they're on their way home, but here's the thing. Perga was the capital of Pamphylia. It's well known for, guess what? It's worship of false gods, of Artemis and Diana. And so they go there. But I want you to know something. They had first arrived in Perga back in chapter 13 when they had sailed from Cyprus across the Mediterranean Sea to Asia Minor, to modern-day Turkey. And they went through that area very quickly. They didn't stay there. Paul got sick. Something happened. Mark, John Mark left them, and they headed right up into the mountains, mostly for health reasons, Paul tells us, and they got out of that area of Perga. But you see, these men, powerfully emboldened by the Spirit of God, say, you know, we missed one place. We traveled a little too quick through Perga. We need to go back on our way home and hit that city too. See, these men are pumped. They're ready. They can take on anything now because they're trusting God. They're growing, they're learning, and we all are. They had chosen not to stay there, but now they went back. They chose to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in Perga as well. And I believe the Holy Spirit directed them to experience persecution before ministering there. I guess they left Perga because it wasn't easy. It only got harder anyway. So if you get out from under the difficult things that face you now, you're only going into more difficult things. Eventually, you're going to have to come back to the difficult things you tried to bypass anyway. So you might as well stand tall. You might as well stand strong now. Because sooner or later, they're going to say, you can't buy or sell unless you receive a mark on your hand or your forehead. Now, I don't believe the church will be here for that, but even if we are, if they tell you you can't buy or sell unless you do X or Y, listen, don't try to justify taking the mark of the beast. You'll be sorry. So, Paul and Barnabas were led by the Holy Spirit to leave now, to leave Pamphylia and to return to Antioch and Syria. That's where they're from. We read in verse uh, 26, from Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch. That's Antioch in Syria, not Antioch in Pisidia. Same name, two different places. Uh, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. That's a very important verse. Have you completed the work that he's given you to do? I haven't. Have you? 
Well, this was a temporary work. You know, when you come back from Cuba or you come back from India or you come back from a mission trip, you, you get on the plane and you believe you've done what God has called you to do. You might go back and do some more, and they will in a few years. But for now, maybe the work was completed. It seems to have been. Well, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. We do that whenever missionaries share their ministry. We have them come up and share what God had done through them. And that's what they did. They gathered the church together, reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And so the first missionary journey comes to an end. What a success! But yet one of the most difficult things you can imagine happened to these men. They were persecuted. They were tried. They were challenged. Paul got sick. Paul got hit with rocks. I don't say stoned because you might misinterpret what that means. All of these terrible things happened to these men, and yet they had completed the work that God had given them to do. Have you? Have you? They were led by the Spirit to go home, and sometimes we are led to go home. They sailed back to where they had come from. They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, thoroughly convinced that God had opened the door, the door of faith to the Gentiles, the people who didn't know God, were now coming to know God. And this truth revolutionized their approach to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they stayed with the disciples in Antioch for about two years after their first missionary journey. See, there's a time for work and there's a time for rest. I'll ask the worship team to come up and just say this as we close. I think we've been encouraged in a number of areas, but probably the most significant area is just to trust God. Just trust God. And don't base your faith in God and your trust in God on your circumstances. In fact, when circumstances seem to indicate that you can't trust God, trust God all the more. And you and I, we will complete the work that God has called us to complete. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this encouragement in your word. We now ask in the name of Jesus that you would encourage us and continue to encourage us and empower us and enable us to do the work that you've called us to do. And yet we know that you are the one who's begun a good work in us and that you'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What we really need to do is submit to that work and trust you with it. And so that's exactly what we do and what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.